Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. This week, we reflect on the complex lethality of the white supremacist system in the United States as it's dealt out death to Black people and others whose lives are devalued within this system. We're responding to the release of the footage earlier this week of Tyree Nichols' murder by Memphis police, which has led to a profusion of shallow statements by politicians and police chiefs who seem palpably afraid that this brutal killing might trigger another movement like the 2020 George Floyd uprising. But we're also still digesting and mourning the murder by Atlanta police of forest defender Tortuguita and the death of IDOC Watch co-founder and KiteLine contributor Ngaza Iman Bahar in Indianapolis two weeks ago. The movement to defend the Atlanta forest has demonstrated the possibility of militantly responding to police murder while simultaneously challenging police media spin. It's been harder to immediately challenge Ngaza's death, which is the tragic result of being sucked into street violence. But later in this episode, we share a moving tribute and political analysis made by Angaza's long-term comrade inside Indiana's prisons, Shaka Shakur. Up next, we hear from Max Felker Cantor, speaking about the recent release of this brutal footage. Hello, my name is Max Felker Cantor. I'm a historian of policing and anti-police movements in American history. I write about Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Police Department, as well as anti-police movements in that city. Um, I'm also a professor at Ball State University. Um, So thank you for giving me a few minutes to comment about the Tyree Nichols murder by five police officers um, in Memphis, Tennessee, and the recent revelations of the uh, body cam footage Um, from that um, really tragic moment. Um, And what I think is really most important for everyone to understand that this incident shows us once again, like multiple incidents that we've seen since 2020 with the murder of George Floyd in recent weeks with the killing of Kenan Anderson in Los Angeles by LAPD, and then multiple, multiple other Uh, people of color killed by the police or abused by the police, is what this killing of um, Tyree Nichols shows us, is that it's not about who is doing the policing or how the policing is being done. It is about policing itself, Um, that this is just another example that reveals the ways that even if you try to change the makeup of police forces, if you try to implement new types of regulations about traffic stops or other kind of oversight of officers on the streets, that those fundamentally do not address the problem of the violence of policing, which is a long-running and deeply rooted part of what policing is in this country. And so when we hear liberals and others calling for better policing or more diverse police departments, that it fundamentally really misses the point. 
um, that we miss the point that the problem is policing itself. Um, and we see that in Memphis in this most recent killing. Um, we see it in Memphis also in the ways that they had set up these specialized units, the Scorpion unit, to address these kind of um, rising and high crime areas um, that lead to, you know, so-called what they would call abuses when those units themselves are inherently violent and problematic. Um, and those units have deep histories. We see similar units that existed in Los Angeles, such as the Crash Division, which was a elite anti-gang unit, which became the subject of a major scandal in Los Angeles in the late 90s called the Rampart Scandal. We see it in Detroit um, in the early 1970s with the uh, kind of notorious stress unit to target high crime areas, but resulted in the killing of many black residents. Um, and so these kind of continued um, efforts of police to come up with these new types of units to control so-called crime is just another iteration of the ways the police power in American society insulates itself from oversight um, and is inherently one based in violence. And I think what all of these moments show us and what the history of policing and anti-police movements show us, and to be clear, it's the anti-police movements that we see across the country that expose and really show policing for what it is because the police do not want to um, actually be transparent. It's the activists who actually show this, is that the history of policing is one that really can't be reformed as we know it. It has to be reimagined, as many activists said after 2020, and abolished um, and defunded and fundamentally questioned and changed. Um, so I just want us to think deeply about how we continue to see the nature of police violence at work, no matter who is doing the policing or how reformed a police department is, that you are not going to get rid of the violence that is inherent in policing. And that is kind of the lesson I think we see, again, with the Tyree Nichols, is that we have to actually fundamentally start to rethink and think about the end of policing. We're sad to share news of the recent death of Angaza Aman Bahar, a friend to us and a co-founder of IDOC Watch. We now read a memoriam written by Shaka Shakur, a frequent contributor to KiteLine and a longtime imprisoned organizer. In this statement, he reflects on his friend and the wider context of Angaza's tragic death. An open letter from Shaka Shakur. Today I lost a close brother and comrade in arms to the streets. Another casualty of the complexes of the prison industrial complex failed policy of catch and release on one hand, and on the other hand, not having internalized our politics to the level of being able to resist the pull and seduction of the streets. This brother was a co-founder of IDOC Watch while still in prison, but he was also a brother that as a young man back in the 90s, I initiated his politicization by introducing him to the new African prisoner of war journals, and he took off from there and joined our struggle to free the land. This letter isn't so much about Comrade on Gaza as it is to and about all of us that have been trapped behind enemy lines, have grown up or did decades behind the iron curtain of the prison industrial complex, and are struggling to find our way on them streets or have failed the test only to return back to prison. This is for some of us who get out and have a support structure team and still can't gain our balance, who still can't resist the temptation of the streets or that of reactionary conduct. 
also for those that have nothing but our survival instincts and maybe a certain level of consciousness and a desire not to return back behind these walls. While I don't want to make this solely about G, I have to use him as well as myself as an example. Here is a rad that did close to 30 years in prison, a rad that got out, hit the ground running, that had the support to start a small business, that had access to significant resources, who was politically active in the community, who was organizing around prison abolition and reform, and walking the talk, walking the straight and narrow, only to have the state send the SWAT team at him for a non-existent technical violation, and send him back to prison, only to have the federal court order his release and discharge a year later. The comrade tried to regain his rhythm, and although once again he had everything placed before him, and all he had to do was step into the shoes, he couldn't resist the pull, the neo-colonial seduction of the streets, of returning back to that comfort zone of the hood and the hood elements. My brother, like many of us, couldn't come to terms with those elements that all of us who have lived this experience wrestle with. The demons of PTSD, of rage, anger, depression, self-medication, of impatience. Issues that we all have or go through, even if we're unable to identify their interconnectedness in real time. We struggle. Herein lies the problem. Often, too many of us are too afraid or ashamed to admit that we need help, that we need some form of therapy or counseling. False masculinity and inability to be honest with self and self-critique has led so many of us to a premature death or back to the penitentiary that is both sad and unnecessary. We are not these mythical superheroes. We cannot go through decades of this physical and psychological abuse behind these walls and think we're coming home undamaged without scars. We cannot live decades on battlefields and war zones, hyper-masculine environments, and try to return to so-called civilian life as if we're just changing shoes. We gotta be proactive on this. Ain't no veteran affairs office for us, ain't no stand down for us, and all too often, it ain't even a stand up for us. We gotta be real about this, and if you're genuinely trying to reach for us and hold us down that is still trapped, you can't be of any real help to us until you try and recover, until you heal yourself. Gangsterism masquerading as revolutionary politics. Quote, once you become conscious, there's no such thing as becoming unconscious, only that of betrayal, end quote. If you're supposed to be political, supposed to be conscious or self-identifying as a revolutionary or freedom fighter, but you are organized as a crew, toting guns unnecessarily in the so-called game, dropping bodies and or hitting licks, and an aid against those who hold the power and foot on our collective necks, you're engaged in gangsterism while draped in revolutionary garb. You might look the part, talk the part, you might even be politically active on some levels, but when you're damaging the same community you profess to represent, when the same people you're supposed to be fighting for are afraid of you, or know that your crew are killers and see you as gangsters, you ain't practicing revolutionary politics or even engaging in revolutionary struggle. You're engaging in warlordism. Again, it's easy to fall into this trap because of our undevelopment and experience. If you came to prison as a young man that was in the streets, street org affiliated, or spent any significant amount of time in prison other than a minimum security, then you're likely to have been exposed to serious levels of violence, i.e. murders, stabbings, rapes, police violence, and just generally an environment where you are taught and trained to be vigilant, used to being armed, or having ready access to a weapon. For 17 years, I grew up in an environment where wars, riots, race riots, takeovers, and hostage situations could explode on a dime and without warning. Comrade in Gaza had 27 years of this. So after living in such a hyper-violent environment, we take this tendency to stay armed to strike first if necessary. We take this social conditioning home with us. It don't matter the environment. It can be the so-called hood or the suburbs. We take us wherever we go. People say, why do you want to be out after midnight or the wee hours of the morning? Because in prison, generally, you aren't allowed out after dark. You can't breathe the night air, look up at the stars or the moon. When you get out of prison, it feels free to just be able to enjoy the night air, to roam like the caged animal you've been treated like. 
We cannot continue to lose valuable comrades and brothers to this cycle. We gotta learn how to love ourselves and value our self-worth. Shaka Shakur. Angaza's been on the show before, and we close this episode with him. In 2018, he called in from Miami Correctional Facility to read us his reflections on Angela Davis's book, Our Prisons Obsolete. This was part of an inside-outside reading group with IDOC Watch. Here he is. This is in Gaza, currently incarcerated at a Miami County Correctional Facility. I'm about to read to you my book report on Angela Davis' book, Our Prison Obsolete. In her book, Our Prison Obsolete, Angela Davis provides her reader with not just a better understanding of the prison industrial complex, but she dares to pose to all of us the question of should society continue to rely on incarceration as the primary means of punishment. As a leading theorist in the prison abolition movement, Professor Davis has dedicated her entire life to the global struggle to liberate the world from the grips of a patriotic, racist capitalism society. Here, Professor Davis helps us to separate prison activists who are simply championing a reformist agenda and prison abolitionists who are seeking the complete dismantle of a systematic practice of regulating an ever larger portion of poor and racially oppressed communities to an isolated existence of incarceration under the authoritarian control of a regime who purposes to exploit those held within the prison industrial complex. Such a position is revolutionary in the current debate over mass incarceration, which is dominated by the prison reformists. It is safe to say that these reformers are not interested in contesting the legitimacy of the prison system and seek only to reform current conditions within that system. Because this position is at odds with that of the prison abolitionists, these reformers seek to discredit voices such as Professor Davis by arguing that the idea of prison abolition is unrealistic and too implausible for serious consideration. The hesitation on their part to consider the merit of the abolition position suggests that these reformers are perfectly fine with the practice of sequestering people in dreadful institutions infected with rampant violence, sexual abuse, and naked exploitation. The fact that few of these reformers have ever spent any time inside prison obviously blind them to the fact that these institutions are not just designed to separate people from their communities and family, but also subject them to the naked exploitation of corporate America, who are out to rake in huge profits off the suffering and misery of the poor and people of color. It is this role that capitalists play in all this which has continued to drive the growth of the prison population, and it's that fact that which Professor Davis now asks us to analyze. Why is it so difficult for the most advanced society ever known to man to envision a social order that prefers repentance over vengeance and the pursuit of justice? This is the main question that Professor Davis is posing, and by doing so, has dared to move the debate beyond simple prison reform. She has correctly asserted that prisons as an institution has become one of the most important features of our image environment. As such, we tend to take its existence for granted and accept it as a sort of common sense approach to punishment. This is not accidental and, in fact, the result of a systematic campaign to legitimize the prison in the conscience of the people. To develop a better understanding of this, Professor Davis felt it necessary to take us back to the origin of the modern-day approach to punishment. The historical link between the practice of slavery and mass incarceration has not received nearly as much attention as it deserved. 
The evidence, however, suggests that both these American institutions were designed to control the nation's black population. Drawn on the work of historian Adam J. Hirsch, Professor Davis points out to us, if the penitentiary internal regime resembles that of the plantation at so closely that the two were often loosely equated, how could the prison possibly function to rehabilitate criminals? Hirsch goes on to say, one may perceive in the penitentiary many reflections of chattel slavery as it was practiced in the South, but both institutions subordinate their subjects to the will of others. Like Southern slaves, prisoners follow a daily routine specified by their superiors. Both institutions reduce their subjects to dependency on others for their fire basic human needs such as food and shelter. Both isolate their subjects from the general population by confining them to fixed habitats and both frequently coerce their subjects to work, often for longer hours and less compensation than free labor. All of this is possible because in the 19th and 20th century, viewed these blacks who were incarcerated as slaves. And while the government, corporations, and the dominant media all try to portray racism as an unfortunate aberration of the past, reality suggests that racism continues to have a profound influence on America's contemporary structures, attitudes, and behaviors. Nowhere is this more evident than America's criminal justice system, where blacks continue to be disproportionately represented when it comes to arrests, convictions, and harsh prison sentences passed out by judges, which all help to fuel the mass incarceration dilemma gripping the nation. While many believe the passing of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution abolished the practice of slavery, Few are aware that the exception written into that historical piece of legislation would allow the peculiar institution to continue so long as those affected by it had been convicted of a crime. This exception meant that slavery wasn't abolished, only the terms under which the practice would be continued modified to give the state the sole privilege of the right to own human beings. Not surprisingly, after the passing of the 13th Amendment, most southern states rushed to develop criminal justice systems that would allow them to take full advantage of the conviction clause written into it, that legislation. Laws known as black codes, which were adopted from the slave code, appeared that criminalized blacks for acts that had they been white would not be considered illegal. Thus was born the convict lease system, a system which made it possible for convicts to be leased out to work to those with political connections or the means to pay the jailer's fees. The courtroom became the, the ideal place to exact racial retribution and widely utilized to place black people back in bondage despite emancipation. Professor Davis described the conditions under which these black prisoners were subjected as slave owners may have been concerned for the survival of individual slaves who, after all, represented significant investments. Convicts, on the other hand, were leased out not as individuals but as groups, and they could be worked literally to death without affecting the profitability of the convict crew. And work to death many were indeed as the South rushed to create an industrialized society in the wake of the Civil War. To illustrate this point, Professor David relies on Alex Lichtenstein's description of the convict lease system. The prisoners ate and slept on bare ground, without blankets or mattresses, and often without clothes. They were punished for slow hoeing, which was ten lashes, sorry planting, five lashes, and being light with cotton, five lashes. Some who attempted to escape were whipped till the blood ran down their legs. Others had a metal spur riveted to their feet. Convict dropped from exhaustion, pneumonia, malaria, frostbite, consumption, sunstroke, dysenteria, gunshot wounds, and shackle poison, the constant rubbing of chains and leg irons against bare flesh. Under these black codes, the wholesale criminalization of the black community took place 
and the motive behind this went beyond racist belief. Lichtenstein breaks down this motive, pointing out for us that New South Capitalton, Georgia, and elsewhere were able to use the state to recruit and discipline a convict labor force and thus were able to develop their state's resources without creating a wage labor force and without undermining planters' control of black labor. In fact, quite the opposite. The penal system could be used as a powerful sanction against rural blacks who challenged the racial order upon which agricultural labor control relied. These were official actions sanctioned and carried out by the state, not as a irrational regression brought on due to bitterness over losing the Civil War, nor were they throwbacks to pre-capitalist modes of production, but rather an effective and rational deployment of racist strategies to swiftly achieve industrialization for the South. Black convict labor was the South's primary means towards modernization, yet rarely are their contributions mentioned when the subject of how this great nation was able to become a superpower. It is extremely unsettling for many to think that the modern, industrialized urban areas of the Southern America can trace its origins to the racist labor penal servitude described by most historians as worse than slavery. However, one of the many rules racism has achieved in this country is the virtual whiteout of the historical contributions people of color have contributed to the development and prosperity of America. As a consequence of this whiteout, many people in America believe that blacks have not made any meaningful contribution to society and thus do not place any value on black lives. It is this devaluing of black lives which caused black people to be viewed as disposable and undeserving. It is difficult to even begin to imagine how much is owed to the tens of thousands of black convicts who were regulated to penal servitude during the 19th and 20th century. But here, Professor Davis has attempted to shed light on their tragic sacrifices and in doing so have exposed the deep-seated connection between a part of America's ugly past and today's current practice of private business exploitation of the nation's prison population in the name of justice. As a prisoner, I tend to agree 100% with Professor Davis' position that the persistence of prison as the primary means of punishment has done little, if anything, to reduce crime. It has, however, helped corporate America generate huge profits and provide goods and services as well as utilizing cheap labor. When you add to the fact that they have stripped prisons of any meaningful educational opportunities while increasing repressive means of control, and evidence suggests that America's prison system, with its sinister array of relationships linking corporate, government, and correctional communities in the media, is indeed a prison industrial complex. Activists and scholars alike all now contest the prevailing rhetoric embraced by these, those who benefit from this prison industrial complex, which promote the notion that crime is behind America's mass incarceration problem. By simply drawing from all the existing evidence, they demonstrate that while crime rates continue to decrease, the prison population continues to increase. That increase, activists and scholars contend, is due to the rapid-growing prison construction industry, who continue to build new institutions that must be filled with human bodies. Why is it important to dispel this myth, and by doing so, will society be better served? Professor Davis and I believe so, and she has attempted to lay out the path for us to create a better means of justice. In the final chapter of her book, which is appropriately titled Abolitionist Alternatives, Professor Davis provides us with several alternatives to incarceration. Shifting the focus from perceiving prison as simply an isolated institution to viewing the current system as a set of relationships that comprise the correctional community, 
transnational corporations, media conglomerates, guards unions, and legislative and courts with agendas, Professor Davis acknowledged that there is no single alternative for the replacement of the prison industrial complex. The current penal system is too deeply embedded in the economic, political, and ideological life of America and the transnational trafficking and its commodities, culture, and ideas. Because the contemporary means of punishment is tied up in these relationships, it is an effective strategy to contest these relationships by offering alternatives to the application of justice that would pull them apart. Here, Professor Davis takes a step in that direction by suggesting we eliminate corporate access to punishment for the sake of profit. Punishment that rely on race and class as a primary factor and punishment as a sole means of justice. Addressing these issues will bring us closer to creating a justice system whose primary focus is on reparation and reconciliation rather than retribution and vengeance. These alternatives will require a radical transformation of many aspects of our society, such as addressing racism, male dominance, homophobic, class bias, and all other structures of dominance. It's within this context that Professor Davis proposed we consider the decriminalization of drugs used as a significant component of a larger strategy to simultaneously oppose structures of racism within the criminal justice system that would further the abolition agenda of decarceration. We must also support the current campaign calling for decriminalization of undocumented immigrants and in doing so challenge the expansion reach of racism. And finally, we must address violence against women, which is so pervasive throughout society and the source of the devaluing of women as a means to control and exploit them. To create an agenda of decarceration, we must cast a broad net to help us do the ideological work of pulling apart the conceptual link between crime and punishment. This more nuanced understanding of the social role of the punishment system requires us to give up our usual way of thinking about punishment as an inevitable consequence of crime. It should help us recognize that punishment does not flow from crime in the neat and logical sequence offered by those who insist on justice through imprisonment and that the current means of punishment is linked to the agenda of politicians, profit drive of corporate America, and media representation of crime. Imprisonment is associated with the racialization of those most likely to be punished. It is associated with this class, and as we have seen, gender structures as well. If we are serious about ridding society of this ugly practice of racial profiling that leads to incarceration, then we must insist that any abolitionist alternatives must not only focus on the prison system, but also all those institutions within our society which a direct social relation that support the premises of the prison. An attempt to create a new conceptual terrain for imagining an alternative to imprisonment includes the ideological work of questioning why criminals have been constituted as a class of human beings undeserving of the civil and human rights associated to others. Acknowledging this disparity in the intensity of police surveillance accounts in part for racial and class-based disparities in arrest and imprisonment rates. Thus, if we are ready to take seriously the consequence of in this class bias justice system, we will accept the conclusion that enormous numbers of people are in prison simply because they were driving while black or fit the prescription of the suspect. They were sent to prison not so much as a result of any crime that was committed, but largely as a consequence of their entire community having been criminalized. To combat this problem, we must create programs for decriminalization that will address the specific activities of the police, prosecutors, public defenders, and judges that make it easy for criminalization of an entire community. Professor Davis' book, Our Prison Obsolete, should be included as required reading in the ever-growing body of literature which is focused on 
reshaping the current system of justice around strategies of reparation rather than retribution, as well as the growing body of experimental evidence of the advantage of these approaches to justice and of the democratic possibilities they promise. As such, I highly recommend it as a required reading for all who claim to be a part of this movement for social justice. We'll have links to our previous episodes with Shaka and Gaza and Max on our website. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who helped with this episode. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at KiteLine, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every week for more stories, news, and insights on the prison system. Thank you for listening.